Good morning. It's Monday, February 24th. This is John Watson, and this is the audio portion of my Death by Tech blog. Today's post is called The Anatomy of a Broken Facebook Group. What got me on this uh, particular topic is that there's a particular Facebook group that I belong to that has a, a very large behavior problem. And I started to think about why. Why does this group it's not unique in that many Facebook groups have behavior problems, but this one is very specifically strange because it's a proximity-based group of people that know each other and who treat each other decently in real life, but terribly in this Facebook group. And I started to think about why. How, how, how does that happen? And it's fascinating to me because I've been online longer than there's been an internet. Um, my first foray into the online world was local bulletin board systems and uh, forums on those and chat rooms on the local bulletin board systems. Primarily, I talked with people I already knew, uh, but of course, I'd meet more along the way. But these were dial-up, um, and long-distance phone calls cost money. And at the time, you know, I was like a kid. Uh, I didn't really have my own phone bill, and my parents didn't want to hear about, <laughs> about long-distance phone calls. So we generally only called local BBSs. And, and that kind of led to the common practice of user meets. Because we were all kind of local, we'd get together now and again. We'd meet at pool halls around the city, get to know each other in real life. Uh, we weren't necessarily best buddies, but we all did know each other. Eventually, I graduated to global Usenet news groups, uh, which was still f fully functional over dial-up, but it wasn't real-time, but it expanded the audience. And as internet connections became faster and cheaper, of course, now we rub elbows with people regardless of where they live all over the world. Uh, because of my long history with online communities, I'm always intrigued. Uh, I'm fascinated by, by how online communities work, and in a lot of cases why they fail and specifically why are they failing so poorly now like it's widely understood it's part of our culture un underpinning that people behave poorly on the internet we all know about keyboard warriors and online flame threads and and i wonder why why is that so prevalent now where where it really wasn't before so to give this some kind of framework i i've I've brought it. I've broken it down into chunks. Like first, let's talk about what are communities. Like what am I talking about when I talk about these groups and communities? So for the purpose of this, of this post, I consider online communities to be the ones where there are strong friend ties uh, and groups. So by strong friend ties, I mean the relationships are two ways, two way. When I friend you, uh, that relationship is not established until you accept it. So now both of us have said yes, yes, we should be friends, and now we have access to each other's stuff where the general public generally does not. So that that's what I call a strong friend tie. On the other hand, I don't consider sites with with one way um, or primarily public uh, posts to be communities. Twitter is a good example of that. Uh, the relationships on Twitter are weak. They're one-way follower type of relationships. Um, there's no private groups and private communication is there, but it's, it's not the primary point of the platform. So I'm specifically talking about communities that have groups and these, these two-way friendship ties. So now, now that we have that underway, uh, the next segment I call the big lie, which might be a little dramatic. Uh, I don't think the lie is done maliciously maybe it is i'm not sure but i do think it's an obvious lie and it is uh fundamental to facebook's life and i'll get to what that is in a second um through all of the missteps and lies that facebook has had over the years there's one fundamental lie that underpins everything facebook does uh facebook has never wavered from this lie because to do so would be like this existential threat to its ability to collect data if we, if we if we found out that this was a lie uh we'd probably leave facebook and uh there'd be no more data and there'd be no no more facebook the lie i'm talking about is that is that facebook tells us that online experience mirrors real life personal relationships that is uh the underpinning thing that facebook uh purports to support uh expansion of 
normal, everyday human relationships online. But the truth is that real-life relationships are fragmented by their very nature. None of us do anything with every single one of our friends. We don't go to a movie with everyone we know and everyone we've ever known all the way back to high school. We don't pop in on a birthday party of a coworker that we haven't worked with for 10 years. Most people just fade into the fabric of our lives once we stop interacting with them on a regular basis, and they get replaced with new people that are in our life now. That's the natural ebb and flow of human relationships. So while there's a great many problems on Facebook and other strong tie social media sites, the root of most of them can be traced back to this big lie. Let's look at why people join communities. There's been a lot of study that's gone into social group formation over the years. Humans are understandably fascinated with ourselves, and a lot, there's a lot of theories that abound on why we bother to commingle at all. Some of the factors that cause people to join groups are proximity, similarity, complementary, reciprocity, and elaboration. Basically, proximity is a tendency to form groups with people who are physically around us. Makes sense. Uh, that's why we have work groups. And then when we leave that company, we never talk to those people again because they're no longer in our proximity. Similarity is a tendency to form groups based on similar demographics or values. That's pretty well understood that many groups are formed that way. Uh, complementary is, is the tendency to form groups with people with dissimilar but complementary traits. Uh, and I'll go into more of what that means later. Reciprocity and elaboration are, are very, very close. Reciprocity is a tendency um, for someone to join a group because someone they like is already in that group. And elaboration is a tendency for groups to grow prim primarily by tapping the friends of existing group members. So those two are very, very similar. Uh, once someone's in a group, their social circuit that's not in that group becomes uh, potential members of that group. So now we know why people join communities. Let's find out what makes a good community. So hands down, the most uh, important factor of a successful group, and by successful, successful I mean um, you know, peaceful, <laughs> is cohesion. Uh, a group of people without cohesion is literally just a bunch of strangers. Robin Dunbar is a British anthrop anthropologist, and he has stated uh, that the number of people a person can maintain a stable social relationship with is around 150. Seems like a lot of people to me. Uh, but that's the limit where things remain informal enough that you can, like, bump into members of that group for a drink uninvited, and it wouldn't be weird. Um, it's also well understood this, that this group of people changes over time and it, because it depends on who's in your life at any moment, that ebb and flow of relationships. Within any group, cohesion is an important aspect that influences behavior. Highly cohesive groups are peaceful. They function well both socially and in task-oriented situations. The thing is, though, cohesion is not spontaneous, as Facebook would have us believe. The Facebook model is just get people to join the group and they'll sort it out. But that doesn't work. Because groups that have co high cohesion uh, have it for a reason. It's not an accident. Highly cohesive groups share certain traits. Some of them are uh, attraction to the group as a whole and attraction to its members, uh, a sense of pride of belonging to the group, and some shared tax tasks or goals or visions. So we now have a framework within to view online communities. The basic parameters for a functioning community is about 150 people, the factors that build cohesion within the group, and the reason why people join groups. So let's look at Facebook groups using this framework. The first problem we have is that Facebook groups are too big. Online communities are generally much larger than a 150-person group a normal human can handle. That is not bad in itself, because all of us have to operate in larger groups from time to time. When we're at school, or at work, or in a community group, we're part of a group that far exceeds our ability to maintain relationships with each of these people. But in those social situations, we're not expected to. 
Uh, like when we go to a concert, we're not expected to establish and maintain relationships with everybody there. So it doesn't cause us stress. They're just anonymous people outside of our circle of concern. And while we're aware of them enough, enough so we don't bump into them, we generally don't see them or pay attention to them. So being present in these large groups doesn't cause stress. However, most social media sites, social media groups, sorry, far exceed this 150 limit that humans can handle. And people in these groups are persistent in our lives, not part of the anonymous herd that's essentially invisible to us. Having a persistent interaction with a group that far exceeds our ability to relate does cause stress. Out of the top 100 group Facebook recommends to me, only 19 have less than 500 members. And only 5 have less than 150 maximum uh, social group size. Most of those groups have memberships well into the tens of thousands and some into the hundreds of thousands. So the next issue is that Facebook groups are not cohesive. So out of those 81 groups uh, that have more than 500 members, what, what can that tell us? Well, they tell me that those groups aren't really working. And I glean that because 71 of those groups have less than 50 posts a day, even though their memberships are well into the tens of thousands, in some cases into the hundreds of thousands of members. Such a large group with such little activity is not really the metric of a cohesive group. So let's use the group cohesion traits and see what might be going wrong with these groups. Attraction to the group and its members. There are two facets to group attraction. First, there's the internal attractiveness of the members uh, to each other. And second, there's the external attractiveness to the group as a whole. Uh, so, for example, Freemasonry is a great example of this. Freemasonry has a strong internal attraction. Members generally think highly of each other. But the fraternity itself has a poor external attraction. It's plagued with accusations of conspiracy and secrecy, and its membership is generally shrinking globally. Conversely, many Facebook groups have strong external attraction. Users think that joining a certain group will benefit them in some way, but they have poor internal attractions. Uh, users in many Facebook groups are extremely toxic to each other. Next, pride of belonging to the group. Uh, in this sense, pride is described as the sense of we-ness. We are a group and we are in this together, that type of cohesion. So while there are some Facebook groups that do generate this kind of pride within its membership, those groups generally also share some traits that work in real life to offset some of its online less attractive traits. Uh, in general-ish, that means that smaller groups aimed at a community niche tend to do better at generating the sense of we-ness. Shared tasks and goals. Uh, this particular cohesive indicator is kind of hard uh, to overlay on a social group. Uh, generally, when, when a group has a task or a goal, it's no longer really a social group. It's an organization of some kind. But there are some kind of hybrid quasi in some groups that might qualify, uh, like groups that are formed for a specific project like a neighborhood cleanup or a local election or something like that. But in general, I don't think uh, shared task goals is really a good indicator of uh, social groups. Next, let's look at how do Facebook groups grow. You start a group, it grows. Why? Um, well, almost all Facebook groups grow. Uh, people who join a group generally don't leave it. It's kind of like when you choose a bank, you generally don't leave your bank. People, people don't like to disrupt stuff. And also these things uh, fade into the background of your life. And this is really true with, with Facebook. Unless something actually happens in a group, you're probably not going to leave it. Um, you might leave a group because its purpose ended. Maybe it was the Christmas 2018 group and now that's over so there's no point in sticking around. Or more likely, there's been some kind of event, like some kind of fight or you know something happened that you didn't like. So that 
brought that group back onto your radar and you said, I'm out of here and left it. But in general, people do not leave. So over time, that means groups tend to grow because, you know, members tend to trickle in over time uh, at a higher rate than they tend to leave. So let's look at why uh, under the recruiting framework. So starting with proximity, um, Facebook doesn't really provide a way to list all its groups. So I, I don't really have a way to gather good data on the, the global state of Facebook groups. All I can really work with is a group list that Facebook suggests to me. And it does that based upon groups my friends belong to that I don't or uh, similarity of groups to groups I actually belong to. Um, it's very hard to say what portion of Facebook groups are formed around proximity, but anecdotally, I, I would guess that segment is pretty high. Uh, a lot of Facebook groups are tied to physical locations directly, such as uh, people of Winnipeg, or indirectly, um, such as Oak Street High School Class of 95. So I feel like proximity is a big player. Similarity and complementary. Uh, similarity fares well here too. Many Facebook groups are based on exactly this. People who are the same age, like the same type of music, work in the same field, that type of thing. The complementary trait does well too. Uh, many Facebooks are set up with this dissimilar dynamic in mind. The, the most obvious one is Facebook groups where a coach or leader runs the group uh, and the complementary dissimilar membership is made of people that like to be coached or led. Reciprocity and elaboration. This is Facebook's bread and butter. Facebook leans heavily into reciprocity and elaboration. If, if you're a member of a Facebook group, you've undoubtedly seen the repeated efforts from Facebook to get you to ask the rescue of your friends to join that group. You'll be scrolling through the group and, and, and there'll be a banner right across the middle saying, hey, invite these three friends to this group. That's reciprocity and elaboration. A, a very key part of group creation on Facebook and its day-to-day -day operation are the Facebook prompts to continually invite your friends to join the group. So let's look at the cracks in this whole thing. Now we know why people join groups and why they stay, and we've looked at the state of Facebook groups and how uh, Facebook supports or doesn't the, the reason to stay. Let's look at the cracks in between. So using our social group framework, we're starting to see why Facebook groups are legendary for their behavioral problems. The steps Facebook takes to recruit people into groups largely match the real-life way in which people decide to join groups. So it's successful. Facebook groups are successful at recruiting people into them. But then the process falls apart. Facebook groups don't tend to have the traits to produce cohesiveness. So that leads to what we see in Facebook. We see groups with massive amounts of members, far exceeding any normal social interaction, but very, very few posts because people aren't actually interacting in that group. And uh, a general level of toxic exchanges between members uh, in these groups is very, very common on Facebook. So if you go to Facebook's About page, which nobody ever does because everybody sees the Facebook login page once and they never see it again because you're logged in for the rest of your life. But if you do go to the Facebook uh, page not logged in, you can go to the About page and see that Facebook states its mission as give people the power to build community and bring the world together. That's Facebook's mission. Build community and bring the world together. This goes right back to the big lie. Facebook doesn't build community in the sense that it wants us to take from the wording. The word community is very carefully chosen because we have good feelings about community. Community is a safe place, a nice place. People working together. But really, Facebook only grow, grows groups, group numbers. It's excellent at recruiting. But that is not the same as building a community. Facebook recruits users under the guise of building community, and when we arrive in these groups expecting community, it can be quite the jarring experience. Most of us are not equipped to deal with persistent large populations like that in our lives. So our social contracts start to crumble and people start behaving in weirdly aggressive and defensive ways. 
Now, I'm going to leave the Facebook group alone just for this final wrap-up bit and just talk about Facebook relationships in general, beyond the group. Uh, there's, there's a similar problem with Facebook relationships in general, which isn't about the groups. Facebook friendships are not real relationships. I mean, they can be, but that's not the deciding factor. Uh, Facebook friendships are, are a data harvesting tool for Facebook. The reason why Facebook wants you to connect with friends and join groups is because every time you do that, they, they find more about what you're like, which is part of the data they harvest to sell to make money. For Facebook uh, relationships to mimic real-life relationships, we would all, including Facebook, have to acknowledge that all of our friends are not the same. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in real life, we have friends, we compartmentalize them. We have friends we go to slasher movies with. We have another group of friends we go ice skating with. Another group of friends that we watch football games with. There's, there's undoubtedly some overlap in the groups. But we've all said something like, I'm not going to invite Janie to this event because I know she won't like it, which is perfectly fine. Not surprisingly, friends are humans, and as such, we all have different likes, worldviews, different experiences. Facebook encourages us to homogenize our friends into one bucket, speaking to them all in the same way about the same topics. That doesn't work in real life, and it doesn't work online. As a personal anecdote, I have a number of friends from the military on my Facebook friend list, and military, the military member population is overwhelmingly conservative. I, however, am not conservative, never really was. But that didn't prevent us from being good friends and soldiers in real life. However, our Facebook relationships are strained. A great deal of them I, I am friends with, but I don't follow them because I don't want to see their posts. This stress is directly attributable to the fact that we deliberately went out of our way to not aggravate each other in real life because we compartmentalize our activities and views with the subset of our friends that also share those views. On Facebook, however, it's a unidirectional blast. All of your friends are subject to all of your thoughts and posts, irrespective of any real-life grouping they may belong to in your circles. Now, to provide a complete view, I have to acknowledge Facebook does have a feature called Friend Lists. Um, that kind of addresses this. It allows you to put your friends onto various lists and then you can just post to those lists. Um, it's a good step, but it's a computer step and it doesn't, it doesn't do much to mimic the real-life ebb and flow of relationships. Um, the concept of categoriz categorizing our friends into lists is, is foreign. Like, social evolution has done that for us and we automatically do that without thinking about it. But going onto Facebook and dragging each one of your friends into some group, are you an acquaintance or a family member or, or a coworker, is difficult. So it doesn't function well. We don't have a lot of experience, and most of us don't even see the need to go through this manual step to categorize people. Uh, and I think we can all agree it's demonstrably not used by many people. People just have one voice, and they blast it out to everybody. At the end of the day, Facebook is here to stay. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. And to be honest, it does provide value to a lot of people. I recognize that Facebook can't mimic real-life relationships, both because it's technically hard to figure out how to do that, Let's look at the clunky friend list idea. And also because its mission isn't to bring us together, despite what it says. Its mission is to make money, and it does that by harvesting our user data. So the trick to using Facebook without being dragged into these toxic mud-slinging comment fireballs is to realize you're not in a good situation. The social situation you're in is not natural, and the site that provided the situation is not interested in making it normal for you. So the behavior you're seeing, and possibly contemplating yourself, also is not natural. I hope you enjoyed that.